You can see my award-winning climate comedy show spoilers at a festival near you, provided you live near or are going to McHuncliffe or Wells Comedy Festivals. More dates added soon near you, conceivably, who knows what might happen. And if you are at Mac, come and see ComCom Redacted live at 4pm on the Saturday. Go to stuartgoldsmith.com and click the very attractive banner image to find out more. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome to the show. Stu Goldsmith here on The Comedian's Comedian, the podcast that gets inside the minds of your favourite comedy performers and finds out how they create, how they process, how they develop and how they cope. Today, I'm very pleased to be speaking to Paul Zerdin, who has a career much broader than many people uh, that have been on this show, despite him specialising in one thing to a really fine art. He is a ventriloquist. He won America's Got Talent in 2017, despite being British. I've no idea how that works. Um, But he is absolutely incredible and is capable of just reducing people to fits. He's got one of those old school approaches, which not surprising. He's been in the business for a long time and has done everything from panto to light entertainment, holiday camps, cruise ships, and as well has a foot firmly placed in the alternative slash mainstream comedy circuit. We're going to hear more about that uh, from Paul himself and a shout out. There is loads of extra stuff from this interview uh, in the Insiders Club. So go to comedianscomedian.com slash insiders to hear all of the extras from this and every episode that has them, which is tons now. Also, some exclusive insiders only recordings of Zoom events featuring Fern Brady, Alfie Brown, Nish Kumar, James Acaster and the How Comedians Co self-help special with psychologist Amanda Donnett. All of that and more insiders-only Zoom Q&A events to come, so there is no reason not to join it at all. Here is Paul Zerdin. How are you doing, Paul Zerdin? Thanks for coming on the show. How have you been coping with the last year? Are things getting back to normal? What have you been doing with your time as a live act? What, how have you found it? It's been um, it's been a it's been an interesting time, hasn't it? Really, uh, I've actually been really lucky. Last year, I was particularly lucky. So when the lockdown started in March, and I, I love going to the gym, I love running, I love working out. Uh, when they shut the gym, uh, I started running more, and I was running miles every day, uh, and I got my creative juices really flowing. I was due to start work in the summer for Butlins and um, I'd have been having a dialogue with them over those few months from March up until the summer. And it was like, you know, entertainment was doomed forever. And then then there was a bit of light. Then, it, you know, it's been up and down for everyone. And I uh, had had a dialogue with them and then they decided they'd take the shows outside. And so they they put up these outdoor stages, which were like kind of, you know, big concert stages uh and they just said you're gonna have to do more shows 
Um, so I used to do three shows on a Friday, three on a Saturday, three on a Sunday. So from July right the way through to the end of September, I was working. I was doing nine oh, shows man. a week. And so okay. I was, I felt really fortunate because I knew that most people weren't working. Um, and, um, and I, and I love doing outdoor gigs. I've done gigs, you know, for the troops in Afghanistan, Iraq, um, you know, festivals, that sort of thing. So it was, you know, it was like doing a normal gig. Um, except when Incredible. it, when it, when it rained, the audience got wet, but then that's, you know, that's what happens when you do outdoor gigs. Um, but most of the time, and that was, there was very much a, a sense of, you know, the British, you know, we'll get through this together. And you'd look out, it didn't rain very much actually, but when it did, not many people left. They sat there in the rain yeah. with their beer. Yeah. <laughs> watching a gig, you know, so, uh, it was actually a really, you know, it was a really fun experience and, and I felt very fortunate. I finished, I finished, um, doing those outdoor gigs in end of September. And then I did a week of shows uh, in Yeovil as part of the Octagon Theatre and Westland uh, entertainment thing about, it was about, it was a lot of piloting a, uh, a socially distanced uh, show inside. And then okay. I did a week's run in Blackpool at the Horseshoe um, by the Pleasure Beach. And then I went and did the Pantoland at the Palladium. And so all the way, oh all, all, all year, um, through through the year we'd been talking um me and, and the, the people organizing all these different things about you know what if if it doesn't work worst case scenario and so i've been lucky enough to be at the palladium the last five years now in the panto and there's a little group of us it's me julian clary nigel havers gary wilmot and um is that it and then yeah i think that's uh, that's it and then we'll have uh, like diversity one year or elaine page or paul o'grady okay. um but we've been like the regulars um and the producer said he's not going to spend money on a brand new production with costumes and sets in case the show gets pulled. So he came, came up with Panto land at the London Palladium. Um, okay. and it was a variety show basically, which the Palladium pantomime is anyway. Um, but yeah. there's usually a little bit of a very thin plot, uh, and lots of lovely okay. costumes and amazing effects and stuff. And it's a big lavish production, but this time it was fairly simple. It still looked amazing, but it was, you know, me doing my sort of greatest hits, as it were, Julian doing some, yeah. some of the best bits from the shows that we've done already. And um, and, it, and it worked really well. And the government had told our boss that the, no matter what happened at Christmas, that the uh, Westminster Council would keep the Palladium open. Um, okay. And um, so we rehearsed for two, three weeks and then we opened and then we shut after six shows because <laughs> they closed <laughs> us down. <laughs> no. So it was quite an interesting time. And it was that I've done Panto virtually every year since I was about 20. And so okay. um, uh, it was really odd having Christmas off. So we, we shut down just before Christmas. And then normally okay. on Christmas Day, uh, you know, I'll have a few drinks and know that I've got to stop drinking by a certain time because I've got a matter now on Boxing Day. So right, I could right, drink right, myself right. senseless on, on Christmas Day knowing that I didn't have a matinee. Uh, to do um in panto so that was weird i mean it was kind of nice in a way to have christmas off but it, it felt really odd this has brought up some fascinating stuff congratulations on working progressively through the pandemic which is just so unusual but one of the things that it, it really sparks off for me is like where in, in what circuit do you exist in what circuit do you feel you most belong because if i think of the things i know about you you like i associate you before the America's Got Talent stuff, we'll get mm -hmm. onto all of that. Before all of that kind of injection of of whatever that was, um, I th I suppose I thought of you as a sort of 
a circuit act, which to me is this, you know, the kind of the mainstream comedy circuit, because I think I opened for you at the Redgrave Theatre in Bristol many, many years ago, maybe like 12 years ago, something like that. So, so as I was coming up as a comic, I was aware of you, gigged with you, and then was like, oh, right, he's, he's one of us. Um, which isn't to say that they, you know, which isn't to say it should be, de- you know, kind of no, no. demarcated into us and them or anything else. Yeah. And and then of course I heard about you in in the context of America's Got Talent, and you've got just because of that, and or at least partly because of that, you've got this enormous body of work online, which is the glitziest, most sparkly looking <laughs> stuff. <laughs> right. And yet, I, and I was googling as I was kind of going through your stuff on YouTube, I found a clip of you doing the Yeovil pantomime in '93. Oh my god, there you go. Doing being yeah. buttons, doing yeah. crowd work with yeah. some kids. Yeah. And I was like, oh, so is is that the the place you feel, I don't mean specifically Yeovil, but is that the circuit, that kind of, um, I don't know, I want to say end of the pier. Is that perjurative? But well, do you know what I mean? Those kind of like holiday camps, butlins, those kind of things. Is is that the core of I, of your background? Well, Where I, do you feel you fit? Most? I guess, uh, I mean, I I started um, as a magician and I used to do close-up magic and, and cabaret and, um, and then I started doing holiday camps and cruise ships when I was about 17. And so, um, and then I auditioned for a job as a TV presenter and I got the gig and I used to present a kid's show, uh, on GMTV for a couple of years called Rise and Shine. And then on the back of that, I then got built in pantomime and then liked pantomime and kind of learned how to do it. Um, and then kind of panto became an annual thing. It was like, yeah, where, where are you doing panto this year? It was just one of those things. So I got into that world and then I did holiday camps and when the contract ended as a presenter, I carried on doing um, holiday camps and then cruise ships. And then I entered a, uh, a talent competition, my first one, which was the Big Big Talent Show with Jonathan Ross on ITV. And I won that. And then from that, that got me into doing, you know, a summer season in Blackpool um, and um, appearing on Royal Variety shows and, and the more kind mm. of light entertainment TV uh, side of things. Uh, and at that time, I I'd, I'd think I'd done a year or two years in Blackpool um with my own show and my then agent said um and they offered me another contract in Blackpool and I and I turned it down because she says you need to be seen you need more television and the only place you're going to get seen is on the comedy circuit so I went and did an open spot for the comedy store and jonglers and then got into the comedy circuit so immediately one would imagine because I, by then you have a just a bulletproof act well I can't I, yeah I mean I've been doing it for quite a long time by then but um you know where some people just start on the comedy circuit whether it be a room above a pub or whatever I had sort yeah. of played I'd started in some quite big rooms and some massive rooms at like Haven and Butlins and Pontins and all those kind of places where there's kids running around screaming and um yeah. you know uh, all sorts going on and so you kind of learn to cope quite quickly so going into the comedy circuit and you know the the late show at the comedy store which i'd been to see and thought oh, i can get a bit leery I, I don't know i just for some reason i wasn't particularly phased by it I, it was i still had to change bits and pieces and i and i thought actually in a way when you're doing the comedy circuit um i wrote with a couple of people and we started to write slightly different material so material that i could do at the comedy store wouldn't necessarily work at, at say a massive great big you know holiday holiday park with kids running around so in a way i could be slightly cleverer with the with the humor not that, that does sound a bit wanky now but i could try different things so i did a whole routine yeah. about being schizophrenic and the puppet points out that i'm you know um that i am actually mad because i'm talking to myself and it was quite a 
clever routine. It was a routine that I loved doing, but it didn't work in a big brash holiday park scenario. But I could do it okay. at the comedy circuit or I could do it at Jonglers for some reason. I don't know why, an Edinburgh, an Edinburgh show. Okay. So I like the fact that I could kind of juggle two sort of circuits in a way. Um, and yeah. I think maybe having, having the experience from starting out in those big, big um, rooms in the holiday parks gave me the, the experience that I needed to be able to just walk in and do the comedy store. But uh, my, I remember Don Ward said to my agent, and she was desperately trying to get me uh, an open spot there, and it took ages. And he said, no, I don't want a ventriloquist in the, in, in the comedy store. It doesn't, okay. it's not right. And she said, please, just let him have a go. I promise you that, you know, you won't have seen anything like this or whatever she said. Um, and I went and I did six minutes, and I was talking to Boothby the other day because he was, he was comparing. And uh, yeah. I did his Zoom show. Uh, and we were chatting about it and he said, you know, uh, Don was like the, sitting at the back going, yeah, go on then. And I, and I had a really, <laughs> I had a really nice time and I have to say I loved it. And the comedy store now is one of my absolutely favorite, favorite gigs anywhere in the world. Yeah. Um, and so, um, it was, I don't know. It, I'm not saying it was a breeze, but I just thought, oh my God, okay, this is no wonder people go crazy about the comedy store. It's like the best gig because it's just so perfectly laid sure. out and, um, oh, yeah. And I think, you know, you'd have to be really shit to fuck it up. Um, but, I, I, you know, I've had some great nights there, but I've had some harder nights there as well, especially, you know, when you're closing the late show at two o'clock in the morning. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, you, we, we, we have to have a duffer of a gig every so often. It's just the, it's the nature of things. But, um, but I, I love doing those clubs. That that spirit of like Don Ward stood at the back of the, his club, arms folded, thinking, "Go on then." Yeah, that, yeah. that kind of prejudice. Yeah. Have you encountered that much on the comedy circuit? Because because the the kind of the light entertainment or the variety circuit, I sort of imagine. I suppose my assumption is that there were some people who were like who who some people in the dressing room who maybe felt the same as Don. Yeah. Did you I come think, across that at all? Uh, yeah, I think so actually. And um I had that from time to time at various gigs. Um I'm trying to think of particular um instances, but um I, I can't I, I'm not gonna name names. I actually can't remember who this was, but someone said to me in the dressing room and it was at Jonglers somewhere, maybe Battersea, and they said, Why are you doing this? I'm like, what do you mean, why am I doing this? Well, yeah, why are you here? You know, you work all these other places. Uh, yeah, well, why can't I work here? And I genuinely can't remember who this was, but I remember having this conversation yeah. thinking, oh, okay. He said, oh, yeah, but we've, you know, you've, you do TV, you do pantomime, you do, you know, your summer seasons, you do other stuff. Why are you doing this? It was like, why are you coming onto our circuit? And, sure. And, and I remember thinking, oh, okay. And that was the first time I thought, oh, right, there is a bit of sort of snobbery about this then and, and some sort yeah. of... Um, divide which I, I I basically you know I started showing off when I was like a kid with a magic set and puppets and Sesame Street characters and I, I just used to do puppet shows and, and magic shows and annoy the hell out of my family uh, and I knew I was going to be a bit weird and and not not carry on my education after I finished school um, yeah. and I just wanted to just you know it sounds a bit kind of over the top I just wanted to entertain but I just wanted to show off and do something and I never wanted to be a straightforward stand-up I, I always wanted to do comedy but I I wanted to have a reason to be there um, and the puppets and the magic and that kind of stuff seemed to just fit really well for some reason and I wasn't conscious of you know the fact that oh there's a comedy circuit that's the alternative circuit and then there's this mm. so-called mainstream or was this so-called mainstream because the alternative circuit has become the mainstream and Totally, um, and yeah. it's all it's all changed. But I wasn't conscious of that. I was, you know, I left school. Uh, I got myself an agent. I started working. In all di- she she said to my agent said to me, 
just be able to work everywhere and you'll always work. Um, mm. And I thought that's a really good, you know, that's a good sort of ethos. It's a good um, way to, to look at things, really, because, um, you know, you can do gigs when you do. I do private functions. I do corporate gigs. Um, and when you do a private function, sometimes, you know, they pay you fantastic money and you might be in someone's back garden doing very wealthy people's, you know, 50th wedding anniversary or, or, a, or a, a 60th birthday party. And I, I get paid mm-hmm. to do all sorts of gigs and there'll be kids on the floor. There'll be uh, you know, big grandparents and, you know, sitting around. I'll be heckled by a dog. You know, uh, you, you yeah. just learn to cope in any situation. A gig's a gig as far as I'm concerned. So I was never conscious or, or, or never really thought about, you know, th- these different circuits. I just thought if you're an entertainer, you should be able to work every audience. Of course, you can't. You, there will always be gigs that you can't. You know, you'll turn up at a corporate at 12 o'clock and they're all absolutely wankered and, and, and the room's bad and the pillar and the sound and everything's against you. You're going to die. You're just going to die. It's the, yeah. you, know, you can't win them all. But I always thought, you know, you should be able to try and entertain any crowd. When you go into a a, a room which you think, oh, this is unplayable, yeah. you know, a corporate where everyone's been hammered for hours. Yeah. Or I think of like one of the worst ones of my life was a jongler's gig in um uh leeds yeah. where they had they'd run out of christmas dinners and placated the crowd with free wine mm. <laughs> for several hours before the show so it was like <laughs> absolutely unplayable what what do you sort of say to yourself before you go into those things i mean you are you are as close to a bomb proof act as i can think of because wow. you are so experienced you've got special skills do you know what i mean <laughs> you know people casually refer to the guitar as a cheating stick in stand-up <laughs> circles because like you can always yeah. get a round of applause but yeah. you've got genuine skill as well as actual bulletproof jokes so when you go into those things when you like are there times when you think even the everything that i've got can't do this what do you kind of tell yourself internally to cope with it um well um i remember turning up at the the great room in grosvenor house which bob monkhouse nicknamed the comedian's graveyard and uh if you've ever done I've it i played that room and it, i didn't know that and that's made me feel a lot it's, better <laughs> um you know it's known for being a pretty tough room to work because you've got most of the audience on either side of the stage if they have a stage in the middle where they normally do there's a massive dance floor in front of you and the bulk of the audience are on your left on your right and you've got like one row the sort of the head tables right in front of you yeah. across this big big dance floor uh, and they have to have screens. And I think the only re- the only way I've ever made it work is when they have screens either side of the stage and you play it like a TV gig. So you play it to the camera uh, and the audience yeah. on the left and right can are watching screens. They know you're there, but okay. they're watching the screens. And so um, it's almost like playing a, a, a really hard TV gig. Um, but the last time I was there, actually, um, I remember looking down from the from the balcony and there was um, what was it? it was an awards night and. Before, before I got there, when I was there for the sound check, and there was, a, I think it was um, Alan Dedicote was doing the, vo- the voice, voice of God. Oh yeah. Uh, and he kind of, I, I see, bump into him at these sort of things all the time, and uh, you know, he's, he's lovely, lovely man. And he looked at me and went, "Well, you've got your work cut out, got cut out this evening." And I went, "Why?" He went, "Well, that table there, they've been playing drinking games since half four, you know." And so <laughs> th- this is, you know, this is like six o'clock. And um, and I'm just doing a quick one two on the mic, and and I'm not on till ten thirty. So you know that you're, oh. you, you're it's it's not going to end well. Um, and the only way to get through it is to think of the money. <laughs> and and you know, I I can if I have a tough gig, I can die. I'm happy to. I mean, no one wants to die, but you know, you've got to try and do your time, do as do as best you can. Just think, actually, 
You're not going down a mine. Your life isn't in danger. Oh, it might be if there's an ashtray, you know, thrown at you. But generally, you know, you you can't win the war and things are stacked against you. I remember doing a gig and and I'm not particularly, my my sport is tennis. I love tennis. I'm not really into football. Uh, I used to play rugby and cricket at school. Um, Not not into football at all. And I got booked for these awards um, in Liverpool. And my agent said, oh, it's media awards. I said, yeah, it says that on the contract. But what is it? She went, I don't know. Uh, I said, can we find out what this is? Yeah, yeah, sure. And then I never got, I never got to find out. So I turned up and the mate of mine came with me. And I think it was at the moat house in Liverpool. Um, and I got there about four o'clock and we were wandering around and, and my, my friend Nick, who's really up on football, went, Oh my God, that's Michael Owen. That's, uh, oh, that's another footballer. Yeah. And I'm thinking, Oh, this, this isn't good. This is going to be some big Larry football, <laughs> football type gig. And, um, and we look in the room. Um, and there's all sorts of, you know, awards going on. And it's the Liverpool Sports Personality of the Year Awards. And I looked at it and I just thought, oh, no, this is a mistake. <laughs> they should not have booked me. They need, need to book, you know, Jimmy Tarbuck or, or you know, some really good Scouse comic that knows about sport yeah. and football. And I just thought, oh, no. I just, I just knew it was going to be not not good. And And I was supposed to be on between 10 and half past. And I went on at about four minutes to midnight. Um, oh, and I followed... Gerard Houllier, who was the okay. uh, guest of honour, he'd just recovered from a triple heart bypass operation and it was for his first public appearance uh, <laughs> since the operation. <laughs> and the audience went absolutely nuts. And then and then the, the comic who I didn't know who, who was introduced me and I literally, I lasted four minutes. <laughs> and oh, it was like, it was man. too late. It was, yeah, I was the wrong act for that for that occasion and everything was against me and I just thought well what can you do they had to pay me because I was supposed to be going, be, going, be going on between 10 and half past so I went on at four minutes to midnight you know what chance did I have I did four minutes and then I just I think it wasn't I wasn't booed off or anything it was like I was just ignored <laughs> yeah you know yeah and it was just do you have a get out line for that do you have do you have gear it's, for getting off stage it's been a challenge and you've won thank you good night <laughs> <laughs> and and in, and in terms of like your opener when you're in the wings at four minutes or whatever it is 10 minutes to midnight mm. selecting what stuff to open with mm. like presumably you have some flexibility as to like okay if they're larry i'll go in with this bit first and then yeah. you as we as we as i guess at a gig like that you've got a suitcase with you with albert with sam with baby I've got a little hold you, all brought it's certain all, it's options all, it's all pretty it's all pretty relaxed and i i always start with a little bit of stand-up i might just take the mic out and start doing the out of sync thing where the microphone is is out of sync with my, oh, with yeah, my own right, voice right. with the sound check because it kind of looks clever uh, and it's different yeah. and you know it's kind of original and it's stand up but with ventriloquism and um yeah it's not just you know when they say a ventriloquist you, you they you instantly think puppet so i've come at it from a different angle to start with and sometimes that uh you know that usually helps that usually breaks the ice but um sometimes you just think i'll get the puppet out and just have a go at them you know and just literally just yeah. goes just lay straight into them with with abuse and that usually that usually works um but then sometimes at that time of night and in that sort of scenario they're just looking at you and i've done a lot of sporting dues actually a lot of cricket dues and they're usually all right but you will have a you know a bad one occasionally and this was a bad one um and but you do if you do get the puppet out you're you're suddenly not this you know um act that they might see on telly you're just a grown man with a puppet on your arm and you just you just look look like a twat (laughs) and so i really that's really interesting god so i could just conscious of that that's how i felt sometimes i just thought you know normally i can go on and i've got you know an air of confidence not arrogance but confidence because i know what i'm doing 
and like you said, I've got a reasonably, you know, I've got a, quite a high track record, but a, a high hit rate. But you you just can't win them all. And sometimes you just think, no, Zerdin. And it's like, actually, it's quite a good little kind of, you know, brings you back down to earth. It's like, Zerdin, no, look at you. You're just a grown man with a fucking doll on your arm and you look like an absolute bellend. That's all you are. And it, and it you know, it's, <laughs> it just, it does make me laugh. I just say, oh God, you know, you feel a complete idiot. But only for a minute. I'm not one of these, these acts that gets in the car and is like literally just obsessing about it. Why didn't it work? Yeah. Why didn't it work? It will, if, if I'm doing a run of shows, like the Vegas, I'll tell you about the Vegas thing. That was the thing where I obsessed about, about getting it right. But a corporate right. is a gig and it'll be forgotten. It'll be forgotten in, in you. I was already forgotten while I was on. So, you know, <laughs> so, so there's no point letting it ruin your life or ruin your night, you know, cause there'll be another yeah. gig. So this is Paul. It's such a tonic to talk to someone who is so irrepressibly optimistic, really robust in his thinking and just has grown up working hard. I wouldn't even say he's trained himself to work hard. That's just his approach. And I'm always in awe of people like that who, as we talk about in the interview, um, I've always felt that that is something that uh, a background in magic tends to bring to a performer's life, whereby they go, if I learn this, if I put the hours in and practice, then this is achievable. There seems to be a lot less stumbling and tripping over genius moments uh, in magic than there can be in uh, in comedy sometimes and maybe it uh, it uh, instills a sort of de facto hard work ethic in uh, in magicians but hey we know lots of comics work hard as well more from this interview in just a second um i am starting to work live again but i don't know if i have uh, i mean listen i'm not going to I'm not going to pretend I'm not talking to people about doing something in Edinburgh. So keep your eyes peeled and your ears. Uh, uh, what would you do with an ear? If you're buff, buffed. Keep your ears buffed um, because I will hopefully be able to tell you on a forthcoming episode before too long exactly what is happening, how and when and where. But uh, keep an eye on my Twitter at ComComPod to find out if I'm going to be somewhere near you soon. I've got some gigs coming up for the Roffle Comedy Clubs in Derby and Newcastle under Lyme. Uh, and I'm doing something special in London at Picture House before too long as well. So keep them peeled and buffed, and you can find out lots more about Paul. He very kindly gave me lots of his time uh, in the Insiders Club. Go to comedianscomedian.com slash insiders, and uh, you'll have noticed I'm talking at slightly increased volume now because Future Girl is pranging out in the background. So I hope that doesn't disturb your listening experience too much. Uh, let's get back to this interview with a man who you can find at uh, on Twitter at Paul Zerdin, on paulzerdin.com, and indeed at youtube.com slash paulzerdin because he's one of very few comedy performers who's bothered to sort out their YouTube name such that it is discoverable and not random. Uh, A little feather in Paul's cap there. Let's get back to Paul's head. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. 
For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. From the perspective of being someone who can play anywhere, like I, I, so my background before I became a comic, I was a street performer at Covent Garden and I really enjoyed that aspect of it. Yeah. Of like, I've put myself in some hellish situations. Sure. You know, I've been bottled on. I did a gig once in Sheffield where I walked on stage and someone threw a Jack Daniels bottle at my feet, which exploded. Do you know what I mean? Like, right. you know, I mean, it shattered. Yeah. <laughs> it didn't explode. That would yeah. have been even worse. But do you know what I mean? Like there have been some hairy kind of things. And I suppose for a lot of the, the early part of my stand-up career, I felt like this has made me tougher. I can cope with anything. It's made me adaptable. These are all positive qualities. Yeah. And then I suppose as my stand-up became a bit more mature and a bit more finessed, I wondered to myself... Did those things help me develop nuance or did they kind of turn me into a bat that could kind of smack down any yeah. any problem? I yeah. don't mean necessarily hecklers, but yeah. do you know what I mean? Like, did it did those things improve me as a comic or did they blunt me as a comic because of the the trauma involved? And I wonder if that is something you've ever kind of considered. Like the the value of being able to play anywhere is yeah. that you can play anywhere. Yeah. But does that mean that you sacrifice a certain degree of nuance because the stuff becomes broader? Yeah. Um, yeah, that's a really good question. I don't, I don't know the answer. I think if you are, like, for example, the first time I did Late in Live in Edinburgh <clears throat> when it was at the old Gilded Balloon um, oh, yeah. and I was doing... The studio, I think it was the studio. It was called the studio in the in the, the old Gilded Balloon, um, and I I'd, I'd never heard of Leighton Live, and so uh, Karen Corrin said uh, we need to give you some more promotion for your show because I was a last minute addition. I think Jerry Sadovitz had pulled out, so I got the room the very last minute, mm -hmm. uh, and they said uh, we need to get you on Leighton Live as much as possible. So Adam Hills and Ross Noble were comparing, and and I remember being in the dressing room at like I must have been about two o'clock in the morning, one at one or two, and Marcus Brigstock walking in going. Mm. I smell death, you know, and I, I remember thinking, <laughs> oh, okay. And everyone was talking about, oh, fucking hell, late in life, well, good luck with that. I'm like, I didn't know anything about it. So in a way, I went into it so ignorant, so naive that that actually it it, it helped me, and it, and and I and I I got a standing ovation one night at late in life, and um, my then agent um, was going absolutely nuts, um, and apparently that was quite a big deal. But um, yeah, you had to go at it quite sort of, you know, go in quite hard. And yeah, there'd be a certain pace where I wouldn't be able to then suddenly do something a bit, um, maybe a bit more uh, thoughtful or subtle. 
Um, so yeah, um, you have to play, you have to gauge it, don't you really? Um, so you, yeah. you, you have to try and work out what the room wants. Um, I will, I mean, I, I, I do like taking a risk. I do a thing where I, I hear people's thoughts, uh, and I go into the audience and I put my hand over people's heads and I do their voice of what they're thinking about yeah. the show and they're commenting on the show. And I have a, a, a bit that was in my last tour, which is, which has kind of grown, um, where, I talk about voiceovers and I love voices and voiceovers and I'm always conscious of whose voice is being used as a voiceover on a TV show. And there's a thing I do with talking about the patronizing voiceover that's on one of these cookery shows, you know, explaining exactly what we can see. David is chopping onions and I do it. I do it as a ventriloquist. So I start narrating my own life. Um, okay. in out and about situations. I talk about the fun you can have when you're just doing a voiceover narrating your, your whole life. And, um, and, I like doing it during the show when I when I'm when I'm in my show talking about uh you know Zerdin is in a coffee shop he's at the very end of a a long queue at the other end of the queue is a man who can't decide whether to order a skinny cappuccino uh, or a mocha choco coca latte he wishes the man would pay his 10 pounds and fuck off uh, and then I do a, a gag uh, about it gets a laugh and this is all without without me moving my lips sure sure um, and and then I will leave it a beat, and I go, Zerdin was expecting a slightly bigger laugh on that last gag. And that gets a big laugh, and Zerdin realises, pointing out the gag didn't get a laugh, actually got a bigger laugh. And then I start doing a commentary on the audience's laughter on that gag. Uh, and right. it builds, and then it drops, and Zerdin's noticed the audience, have, the, the reaction is dwindling. Oh, but then there's a woman with a funny laugh. That's making that little pocket of, of the audience laugh gotcha. even more, and it starts up again. And you can comment on the whole audience. Uh, and on and and it will come back in the show. So if someone gets up to go to the toilet. Zerdin's wondering where they're going. Are they going to the toilet or you know whatever? And I love that. And it's you can't do that in a in a in a. I mean, if you're going out in an outdoor gig and you've got you know uh, kids running around, that there's certain material that you, it just it just won't work. It's too subtle. But in a theatre, when people have come to see you, then you can really play yeah. play with things. So that's what I love about being on tour and you know you they've come to see you as well so it makes it slightly easier. And do you find it's interesting I don't think I knew you were a magician before you were a ventriloquist but it it kind of makes sense from what I know of magicians. I think that I have a preconception of magicians as like uh I guess you're in your late 40s, you've got great skin, you work out. Magicians Thanks. seem to know how to do life, do you know what I mean? Because I think there is some aspect where if you get into magic as a kid and you go, oh, you can learn stuff via books and DVDs and improve yourself in the way maybe in like a, a sort of more, uh, a, a more, um, uh, I don't know, just a more way than being a juggler. Like I, so I learned to juggle when I was 16. I went, oh, I can, I, there's a thing I can't do. And yeah. I just learned how to do it. And yeah. now I feel really empowered. Yeah. And there is something about magic whereby it is kind of chopped up into sections and made modular. And like, here is the bit, here is the patter that comes with the bit. Here is the, here's the material. Here's the jokes. Here's yeah. the, here's the props. Yeah. And provided you engage with them and learn them, it becomes a quite, a sort of quite an NLP way of living your life, quite a sort of, um, do, does, does any of that make sense? Like you kind of go, it, it's almost like there, magic comes with lots of things with sets of instructions. Yeah. And if you get good at setting, at following the instructions yeah. 
and self-discipline and practice yeah. and training, yeah. then you reap rewards. Yes. And so it seems to me that far more far more so than in comedy, where it's all a bit like if you stare out of the window at the right time whilst just drunk enough, you have a brilliant idea for a thing and you can <laughs> yeah. you can be a sort of slovenly hobo of a starving artist. You know, there yeah. is that that sort of model of a comedian. Yeah. It seems to me magic is far more like follow these steps and you will achieve X, Y, Z. Yeah. And that gets embraced as a lifestyle. Yeah, well, ma- magic... Um you know, I started doing from about the age of 10 and then I did it professionally for a few years. Um, and then I got sick of when I was doing close up magic, I got sick of people telling me to get lost when I was approaching the table, whether they're trying to have a romantic dinner for two. And I'm I'm saying, hey, pick a card, you know, or yeah. or going up to a table at a corporate event or whatever. And people were I just couldn't believe how rude people were. Uh you know, could you make this, could you, could you refill this bottle of wine? Yes, I could, but you wouldn't want to drink it. You know, you, you, you learn how to cope in these situations, but, um, I got sick of people being so negative towards it. And I, if I was at a table and a magician came up, I would be like, Oh, this is brilliant. Yeah. Show us some magic. But not everyone's like that. They're, you know, people in, in different situations can be horrible. Um, but I always had the magic as a, as a, as my sort of, that sort of my background. So ventriloquism, is related to magic because it's all deception, it's all illusion. So I'm creating the illusion that this character is real, whether he's... Well, one of the things I love doing is, is you know, having the, the bag or the box, whatever they're in, and just I'm having a conversation with myself, pretending that there's these little characters in there, and the, and people buy it, whether it's at the comedy store, you know, um, or, or a, you know, a corporate event. But people, they somehow, they go with it, and it's all illusion. So in the in the new show, I've got Al, Albert, my old man character. He does a, a mind reading magic trick uh, where he's blindfolded, and then he sends me into the audience to get someone to pick a card, and then he can't remember okay. what what he was talking about because he's sort of senile. But I'm controlling him with a mini controller in my hand and voicing him with a microphone. But he's on stage and he's animatronic, um, and so it's using this kind of magic technology um, and yeah. puppetry all in one, and, I, and that's my magic background. That's you know, I want to be a magician on stage now doing David Copperfield t- type stuff, but I'm never going to do that. So this is my way of doing it. You know, it's kind of, it's <laughs> okay. sort of snuck in. Is that, is that right? Is, so your, your take on yourself is that as a ventriloquist, not that you're a failed magician, but that you would be a magician if you could. Yeah. But at the time of, of starting out as a magician, my agent looked after lots of magicians. She said, I've got loads of magicians. What have you got that's different? And I said, well, I'm learning ventriloquism. And, and she said, well, go away and practice that and come back when you've got an act. So that made me go down that path, really. So okay. it was all her presumably, fault. Presumably now, though, you have sufficient kind of time and opportunity yeah. to like have you ever considered kind of putting the vent stuff on pause and getting back into magic because as a as a charismatic magician i mean there are not a, you know what i mean the, i always think there's there's a, a gap in the market for magicians with actual charisma Do you right know I mean? that's interesting um now i i i've i've just i like to do it as a hobby really and it's and it kind of sneaks into the show into the into okay. my comedy show um sort of via the back door, uh, through, through the trap door. It's a, it's a, it's, it's just, um, it's an extra layer that, that I can play with. So I've got the ventriloquism, I've got the, the puppets on their own, uh, and they're doing magic as well. I think that's enough. Yeah. I, I would never really want to be, I, I'd love to be in a copper, Copperfield type. When I, when I started doing magic, it was a cross between Copperfield and Tommy Cooper. It was a mishmash of illusions and, and kind of like taking the piss out of it. So it was always going to yeah. be comedy related. Um, but I like the way that I can do it with a puppet 
and, and I'm actually doing a trick. So the trick does actually work in the end, but the puppet's done it, but he doesn't realise how he's done it. The audience think, hang on a minute, was that supposed to happen? Yes. Oh my God, he got the card in the end. So it all happens by accident, but yes, um, gotcha. I, okay. I love that whole, you know, and no one's doing that. So I think that's, uh, you know, I'll keep doing that. And I've been working on a way of, I do the mask thing, the, the ventriloquist mask, and I have an animatronic version of it. So I came up with, you know, the mask thing has been, a, as, as, a, in various forms over the years, has been going for a long time, uh, making people from the audience talk. Wayne Dobson uh, mm-hmm. did it, you know, without masks. He used to make them talk uh, when he was mm-hmm. doing his magic. Um, various ventriloquists have done it a long, long time ago. And, and I came up with the idea of doing an animatronic thing. So a man and a woman are on stage, and I leave them on stage, and I go in the wing, or I'm in the audience, voicing them and controlling them, getting them to do silly okay. things. And I've got them. I mean, my Vegas show, I used to get them to do magic. Um, and oh so God. I love, you know, just seeing what you can get people to do. So I'm, I'm, I'm living my magical fantasy through puppets and, and humans. Yes, on gotcha. <laughs> okay. Okay. And when it comes to the developing of bits, it's really interesting. I can see your sort of obvious glee at like, at creating a thing or kind of putting two things that already exist together mm. in a different way. Mm. And that's, there are obviously links there with, with just you know with non-prop related stand-up whereby yeah. you go okay there's a premise that chunk i'm going to play that premise yeah. for a while yeah then i'm going to play that premise whereby i can never every every so often someone says to me what's a good example of a premise and i just haven't got one off the top of my head yeah. but you know it's like the, the 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 spirit might be i hate shopping yeah but the premise is like i'd rather be at war than shopping and then <laughs> you kind of put the two ideas yeah, together, yeah. for example yeah. um so it makes note yeah that could work that's good so uh, <laughs> um so so because of that kind of modular element of of magic and i guess ventriloquism as well when you say okay now this is going to be a baby bit this is going to be the bit where baby's in the case and no one sees him or baby's in the carrier and no one sees him or this is the bit where sam's alone on stage and he suddenly starts talking mm-hmm. or whichever those bits are is it the ones you just described as well do like when do you I just I wonder if you could talk to me a, a bit about coming up with those bits, how that happens, whether it's you're working on something else and the notion just pops into your head or whether you find yourself sat in front of a blank piece of paper thinking, right, got to come up with a, a new bit. Mm. Do you know I mean, where do, they, where do they arise from when you come up with a, a chunk like that, that you go, oh, I can play this mm. or, you know, the voices going around the room or something? Um, I mean, some of it comes up, comes by accident. Some of it I've. I mean, I'm always thinking of stuff. So if you're writing a new show, um, I'm always thinking of w- what can I do? And I, I find now that I've seemed to have got, got a quite a sort of a good structure to the show. So in a way, I just now I try and replace opening, the openings with Sam. So Sam will do 10, 15 minutes at the top of the show. Uh, and so I've got a structure. So it, it, the puppets will all come in probably probably around about the same place. Um I didn't do the human dummies on the last tour because I felt that I'd been doing them for so long that the human mm. ventriloquist dolls with the masks, I thought that everyone's seen it on telly. Nina's, Nina Conti's been doing it. Um, you know, lots of ventriloquists do it. It's a great bit. Um, I thought maybe people are sick of it. And actually it turns out that people, when I didn't do it on the last tour, people were like, oh, you didn't do that bit that we've seen. Yeah, right. So you kind of think, okay, well, I, I don't want people to go, oh, he always does this. So I try and, you know, make it all different and new. Uh, so I'm conscious now on this on this tour um, that I'll put that routine back in, but I've got different jokes and a, and a, and a different. It's the same structure, but it, they'll finish on some stupid song or dance where they where they look yeah. silly. Yeah. Um, but I'm also conscious of 
you know, I think people might be sick of wearing masks by the time I get out on tour in the autumn because we've been wearing them for the last year and whatever. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. Um, so um, anyway, I'm conscious that people want to see certain things. Um, but there's usually a structure to it. I love I love a set piece. So um, like with some music and some lighting and, and, a, and a storytelling bit. So one of my favorite routines um is where the baby wants a story bedtime story and and that was one of i think that was one of my most watched clips on the um america's got talent uh show and that's where i read him a story and he changes it because he hates the the, the 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 evil character he wants me to change it to a duck and of course it ruins yes, the story yes, i've seen the bit yeah and it yeah. and it just i remember doing that live for a few years and it just kept getting better and better and better and then when i put that forward as a potential spot for uh, America's Got Talent when I got to to the, the I think it was the judges cuts whenever that whichever bit that was uh, I said I'd like to do this on there and they, they've got to check your script and all that you know NBC approval and blah 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 the yeah. lawyers look at everything uh, and they said oh we love this I said I've got this I could do as well no no we want this with the duck the storytelling it's very much family it's perfect prime time NBC family audience stuff and I did it and I, and I knew it would look good on camera and work well and it's just a really it's a great idea and it, and it was my friend Martin Beaumont's idea not mine um, and um, and he wrote most of that and I tweak it and change it and rework it and as you do when you're working all the time you know um, and um, it's just such a really good idea and so that's uh, he, he ruins every story every story has yeah. a duck in it and so the story doesn't work um, but I want to be able to find a new version of that so I'm, we've just yes. been writing the new show and I'm like I want to be able to do that but you can't do that because we know he's going to change it to a duck and it's like it's been done it's like that's the gag. We can't do that, so we have to find another way. So now he's ruining nursery rhymes. So we've 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 gone down a different route, not with a duck, but just changing things because uh, he doesn't gotcha. he, he doesn't understand it. it doesn't make sense. Um, and so I like having a, a having a structure. And you think if if one thing works, then I can find something else to kind of replace it with. Doesn't always work. Yeah. Um, yeah. The old man, Albert. He's he he's he's my favourite character in a way because you can do more with him because he's he's deaf or he's yep. got selective deafness so he can hear yep. when he wants to hear he's got selective senility so he's he's all there really but he's playing he's playing at being old uh, and 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 also you know he's got to an age where he doesn't care what he says because he's 90 and yep. he's not got long to live and there's <laughs> endless amounts of you know humor that can come out of that whether it's the hearing stuff um uh, we've got a, a routine in the show this year about um, his memory tests. Um, the three worst things about getting old, about getting old, it's finding a little something and then you can literally just hang all the jokes on it. And it's all about yes. age and, and um, getting old. But then also he wants to do his magic act. So he does a magic trick because uh, he used to do that during the war to entertain the boys. Um, and um, you can sort of do you can you can do anything on the last tour albert had a conversation with his dead friend wally uh his wartime buddy wally came back and he did a double act with his dead friend next to him uh, and i remember okay. doing writing that routine some years ago and thinking i wonder how how far you can go with this you know there, there's me and there's a puppet and the puppet is now singing a song with his dead yeah. friend next to him it's like well if they're believing that this puppet's real they might believe that there's a dead there's no one there i don't know it's just so it's ridiculous <laughs> isn't it really and that worked really well so from then on, I thought, oh, okay. So, if they believe in the puppet character, yeah, if he's real enough, then you can kind of do 
more or less yeah. anything. So um, yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? The this sort of the elasticity of people's belief. Yeah. Like once you've got once you've got them over the hump of obviously this thing isn't real, but I'm gonna but just it's just it's the simplicity of ventriloquism, whereby yeah. simply because you've learnt the shapes to make with your mouth to make it speak without your mouth moving, yeah. they get invested in something made of foam, and then once they've done that, you've got them because yeah. you can get them further invested in everything. Yeah, it's 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 funny. I mean, it has to, it does take a long time to get a character right. Albert took a long time. Sam, I've been working with for the longest, um, and then I've got a I've got an urban fox, and I've got a bodyguard, okay. and the urban fox. I thought, oh well, he's going to be. When I was working in, in America um, and I signed a three-year contract and then the contract ended um, uh, be- uh, be- before before the contract was finished, I, I was thinking of a new character and I was going to go down. The, I, was, I was thinking about a coyote uh, mm. and then the contract finished. And so I came back here and I was touring uh, in the UK. So I thought, oh, OK. And I'd commissioned this new puppet, but they hadn't. It hadn't, you know, got that far. So I thought, well, okay, let's uh, let's do a fox, urban fox, and and I and I thought, oh, that's a really good idea. Then someone said, oh, Keith Lemon did an urban fox character on his sketch show, and I watched it. And I thought, oh yeah, that is kind of that is similar, but not quite the same. But the puppet was halfway there already, so I thought, yeah. well, I'm going to continue down this road. Uh, and then I took it out on tour, and some of it worked, some of it didn't. So I, I shelved it for a while and thought, right, I'm not happy with that. And I had the bodyguard character and the bodyguard wasn't working at all and then suddenly i shelved the fox put all my efforts into the into this bodyguard uh he was a secret agent and then he turned into my bodyguard and it made made sense that they'd given me a bodyguard when i won america's got talent uh, and, and okay. then, even though this is a few years ago he's still here and i, I can't get rid of him and and, and he's a he's a re, his face makes me laugh now and i've got his character and i know who he is and okay. um and it's it's but it's taken a few years to get right it, i find it it takes a long time it's quite quite painful in some ways and and what is it that that the that takes the time is it trying things and sort of trying them on in front of an audience yeah. and seeing whether they ring yeah. true yeah. every night on tour uh, and i was working with phil butler who does some writing for me and he's my support yes. act as well on on okay. the tour and so he'll sit out there most nights and he'll watch and we'll 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 rewrite the bits that didn't work that night. And then the next night yeah, we'll, we'll, tr- we'll try it. I'll be learning it for the, before the next show. I mean, it's quite, it's quite full on. Um, and then we'll keep, we'll keep on tweaking it. But the, the bodyguard character just seemed to click in one night and I just thought, Oh, I've got it. Cause his voice was very much like that. Yes, sir. That's right. Yes, sir. Yeah. Um, and, and then I thought, well, is it the voice? Maybe the voice didn't work. So one night I did, the, he, he did the whole, the, the whole, um, the whole spot with like that. He was talking like that. And then suddenly became really kind of camp, and um and just not and I thought the contrast he looks butch but they've got a very camp voice is that is that yeah. funny and it wasn't funny it turned out and um and I went back <laughs> to the deep voice so it gives me a sore throat but the voice was right and then it worked out that he's kind of a Buzz Lightyear character and then I I could okay. I sort of yeah it's quite it does give you a bit of a headache I must say and um probably quite boring to hear about it but it does take not a long at all, time not at all. it takes a long time but I feel like the characters all know who they are now and I know who that, they are. Isn't that interesting that you, when you've got it right, is the, is the urban fox, has he come back? Yeah. Have you the nailed fox that one? The back now, yeah. Yeah. And I think, I think I know who he is now. Okay. And it's much, that once you know, then it's easier to write. It's easy to write for a baby because you know that he's obsessed with boobies and nappies and, and wants to know what everything is. And he's a baby. He's a child. Obviously yeah. he's talking before his time, but, um, you know, Sam is a cheeky little shit. He's kind of like a Muppety Bart Simpson. Um, mm-hmm. and the old man is old and he's like an older version of Sam, basically cheeky and doesn't care yeah. what he says because he's going to die soon. Um, and a fox, you know, I always had a, an issue with, 
Like, for example, watching Ventriloquist when I was a kid, I don't really remember. I got to know Keith Harris later in life. I don't remember him on television. I think he was on, I don't know, I never saw his show. I I remember Mm. Rail and Lord Charles. I never Mm -hmm. saw Keith Harris. But someone having an animal puppet, like a duck or a monkey, I couldn't get my head around that. A human-type character, a kid, baby, uh, an old man, that that made sense because they were human, even though they looked muppety. Yeah. But when it when it came to a to a, an animal character, it, I just couldn't get my head around it. So when I got the fox, even <laughs> though the fox puppet looked amazing, uh, I still couldn't get my head around the fact that why the fuck would the fox be talking? You know, now I can get my okay. head around it and just think, well, everything else talks in your life. Why why not? Yeah. Um, you know, why not a fox? Uh, so so I know who he is now, and he knows who he is. That's- I think. That's such a strange. I mean, that just that very specific example of like, why on earth would Keith Harris be talking to a duck? Yeah, I know, I know, I know. There's no, there's no logic to any of this, but it's just you've got to be able to get it clear in your head, and then then you know where you are. It's like I've got a routine for a talking microphone uh, yeah. that I've been working on, and I'm I'm not I'm not I'm not sure about it yet. I'll, I'll put it in. I'm doing some some shows over the summer in Blackpool at the Horseshoe um, uh, every Friday and Saturday. And um, I'm putting new bits in. So there's lots of the new show in okay. already and, and some old bits. It's like, like greatest hits plus lots of new stuff. And so I can do, okay. it's such a lovely room to work. I can, I can put new bits in. And so I want to try the talking microphone. But I think it's just the microphone. Why would anyone believe that that's talking? Even though my lips yeah, aren't moving right. and there's a sound coming from somewhere. But then you think, well, hang on a minute. Why would they think that there's a kid in, in the bag talking? It doesn't, sure, it, it's, sure, it's my sure. head that's the problem, you know? That's so, interesting. Um, it's my anyway, head that's you, the problem. So no, I, I just want to stay with that for a second. The idea that it's your head that's the problem. It's your, like one of the, one of the jobs for you is to overcome the hurdle of your own kind of, like it, it's to stop getting in your own way regarding your imagination. Because I think what you've proved time and time yeah. again is they are invested in it. They do believe it. They do go with it. So you need <laughs> to get the blocks out of the way to say, yes, I'm fine with this. And then it falls into place. Yeah, it seems to. And uh, even though this is turning into an episode of the psychiatrist's chair, uh, oh, it always I, does, I mate. I'm sorry, I should have said that up front. <laughs> it, no, no, no. It's good though. It's good though. But but it's it's interesting because I remember doing a pilot for a sitcom. I had a sitcom idea, uh, which I was have been trying to get off the ground for a long time. And I remember sitting down with the producer, with the production company, and we were going to shoot a, a a pilot taster, so like a ten minute um, episode with a couple of scenes from a half an hour. What would be a half an hour episode? And we sat in their in their offices. And he said, with a big whiteboard, and he said, right, what are the rules? What are the rules of your show? Is you, you're the babysitter. You've got an old man you're looking after. You've got a kid and a baby. Okay, you've got a love interest. There's a woman next door that you fancy, and she comes in to do a bit of babysitting, and and we're going to try and get you together. Uh, What's your relationship with the characters? Well, he's my, you know, I'm the babysitter. I'm I'm, I'm the godparent, maybe, whatever the rules were, you know, whatever Mm -hmm. our characters were. He then said, what what are the rules? Can the puppets be on their own? I said, yeah, I think they should be on their own. I think we should have them wandering around like Muppets. Um, But I need to be able to voice them. Mm -hmm. So um, he said, Okay, are you going to be puppeteering them? I said yes. When there's a two shot and Sam is there saying, "What are you doing?" Well, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm trying to do some work on this, you know, this project, whatever. That should be a two shot, so it should be me and the puppet uh, talking. Yeah. But then when it cuts to a wide shot and Sam goes off upstairs, we have a puppeteer take over. Uh, and but I can okay. still say, "Sam, what are you doing up there?" Yeah. 
you going upstairs? Yeah, make sure you come down. Okay. You know, and so he would be lip syncing, Puppeteer would be lip syncing to my voice. So I, so the rules were, gotcha. I was going to do the voices live, but I wouldn't yeah. always be puppeteering. But he yes. said, yes. okay, uh, but why would you be doing the voices on a TV show when we can put the voices in afterwards? And so I thought, oh. okay, yeah. He said, I said, but, but I'm a ventriloquist. So the, the show is a ventriloquist show, but it's a sitcom. Yeah. It's me and the characters. And I'm a ventriloquist, but we don't go, Hey, look at me. I'm a ventriloquist. It just happens. Yeah. But why is it yeah. happening? Because you could be cheating in the edit. The voice could go in. And so that kind of was a bit of a head fuck and made ah. me think, okay, yeah. Why am I doing ventriloquism if we can cheat it? So then we, then we, we shot the pilot and, and there were bits of it that I think looked great. There was Albert was, um, on a stair lift, a proper stair lift in this flat. We should, we shot it and he's animatronic and he looks great and he's busy trying to come down and Sam switches it back up. He's got, he's taken the whole show to come down and Sam presses the button. He yeah. goes back up again. So he never gets to come down. Um, and there's some really funny bits, but we realized it needs to be done in front of a live audience to make it work because yes. the, what I do is very live and yes. is all audience based. And so, we realized that that was that was the element that was missing if it was shot like a live show but in front of a filmed in front of a live yeah. audience yeah then when sam does pop up behind the kitchen counter but i'm not necessarily operating him but i'm doing his voice we can mm. then have fun the audience know that he's being puppeteered totally. but i am doing the ventriloquism um yeah. then we can start playing around with it and start I can because start it, because it has to be, yeah. we have to be watching you suffer, yeah. right? We have to be watching it be difficult for you. Otherwise, what's the point? It's yeah. just you in a house with some yeah, puppets. Exactly. Like yeah. you in it, like, yeah, that's yeah. nuts. So it, it is, it's, you know, you have to get it. Once you get your head around it, it kind of makes sense. But, um, so that was, so that's the, that's the show that I'm developing at the moment. Um, okay. But it's got to be done in front of an audience and they've got to be able to see it. Yes. And almost that thing where, when things do go wrong, like Mrs. Brown has those, those moments where, yeah. you know, that they, they, they go again, they point out. It's like, it's that sort of pantomime thing, you know, pantomime philosophy yeah. where you break the fourth wall and you say, yes, we fucked this up. We're going to do it again, aren't we? Yes. Okay. This time we're going to get it right. You can do that with the puppets. I mean, I do that with the puppets live anyway. Yes. Um, when I do fuck up or trip over a word or something, the puppet will point it out and people love being let in on a secret on a, on a, on a, yeah. on a, they love, they love when you fuck it up, don't they? You know, so it shows that people love, love an outtake, don't they? So, um, yeah. I thought that if I did do a sitcom live, uh, for, for television, it would have to be, you know, recorded in front of an audience and you'd have, you'd, if you'd keep the mistakes in if they were good, funny mistakes. And then with someone puppeteering uh, one of my characters and I'm doing the voice, mm-hmm. I'm still doing ventriloquism. You know that I'm doing ventriloquism, but you don't have to have the, your arm up the puppet all the time, which is why I use animatronics. So in my live show, Albert's on stage uh, telling me to, yeah. what, to, who to pick for a card trick. It's the same thing. It's as if someone else is puppeteering him, but you know I'm doing the voice. You know, you know it's me in my crazy sort of world. Uh, and yeah. I thought it'd be fun if you then had a puppeteer who's got the script, he knows what the lines are. Then if I start ad-libbing and start doing, you know, saying things and going off script, the puppeteer's then got to lip sync and then we see how good a puppeteer he is. Yeah. So we can point things out like that as well. And it's like taking the piss out of the whole, yeah. the whole world. Yeah, it keeps the ball in the air, doesn't it? Because yeah, I think yeah. the like what we love about seeing, you know, some of the bits where you're doing multiple voices at once or even just yeah. the you know, just you talking to Sam, keeping a conversation going, is it's heroic because it does, it it, it kind of, it, it sort of shines with that element of this guy is working incredibly hard. Like you could, you could go wrong at any second. It's like watching, <laughs> and, and frequently do. 
Yeah, well, sure. But it's like yeah. watching a juggler, isn't it? There's, it's like you're doing something that we couldn't possibly do. And so right. when you just make it, when you like Seinfeld's thing about um, to understand how jokes work, Seinfeld has this thing he says about how the cliffs need to be a, a joke is a, a leap over the, between two cliffs. And if the cliffs yeah. are too close together, you just step across and there's no laugh. And if they're too far yeah. apart, you fall to your death. They yeah. have to be exactly far apart enough. Yeah. And it's like we have to see you challenged and yet heroically succeed. Yeah. I've seen the like the supercut on YouTube of all of your America's Got Talent appearances. And it's fascinating watching them all in a row because you get this kind right. of perspective on like on the decisions, a perspective which you must have, or a tiny fraction of it, um, that you must have on the decisions as to what stuff to use for which bit. Like, do you yeah. use your big closer? Do you risk using it too early? Do you yeah. like you've got you've got to kind of plan a narrative of like I've got to surprise yeah. them and then I've got to surprise them again. And like, how do I get through to the final? Do I use up the thing that gets me to the final? But then when I get to the final, I don't have the thing. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. and also it was 2015. Was there a? I mean, there sort of is a culture now, a sort of an accepted culture of comedy circuit acts going on to these sorts of shows. You know, when they first started, it was like they were, they felt like they were for kind of random weirdos. And then the format yeah. resolved itself into let's get some really pro people who fancy exposure to a bigger audience and yeah. kind of guarantee them through to a certain stage such that they're interested enough in doing it. Do you know what I mean? There's all of those yeah. kind of issues. But in 2015, did it feel like a sort of, um, did it feel like a risk? Did you feel like I might be handing over control of the edit i might be handing over creative control to someone who could make me look bad if the gig goes badly there was always an element of risk but i think it was a very much a calculated risk um they from from the moment i did my opening my my, my first spot with in front of the judges walking out of the dolby theater um i was so tired i was so jet lagged i'd been there all day yeah. I'd been waiting hours to go on. I'd been filming lots of B-roll footage uh, yeah. f for that for that first spot as well. Um, I felt like they liked me already, um, even before I did my spot with all the footage I was doing, um, all the BT stuff. And then when I walked out, I was so tired. I that I had a sort of an element of I actually don't I don't care about this. <laughs> I don't, that, I'm so tired. Was that unusual? Because that that really to me that's the crux of why that first one was so good was because your right. whole attitude like God here we are. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. presumably that was scripted to an extent. No, well, no, I I I just had I don't know. I, I obviously I wanted to do well. I didn't want to be rubbish on it and and get buzzed off or anything. But I I was so tired. I just thought, well, look, you've been doing this for a long time. You know what you're doing. You can do this. This is fine. But I was like, oh, fuck it. And I, and I and I I took my girlfriend um with me. So I was called for six six thirty or seven o'clock in the morning, and I was told I'd be on at some point in the afternoon. Then I was there. I think we were filming two shows. Uh, a day and then they put me back to the second show and then they put me back to the second half of the second show and so like you're ready and then you're and then you and then after a while you just you you're, you're just they wear you down and so you are you are drained sort of you know uh emotionally and physically you're just knackered so um you have to somehow get through that and kind of find a, an inner inner something just to get you through and keep smiling and I, and i thought okay 
um, just go for it. Just do what you do. And, and, and thank God they, they loved what I did. And that kind of made me go, oh, well, well they like this. Oh, that's good. Oh, all right. This is going well. Uh, and then I thought, oh, okay, okay. This might be quite a fun experience then. And they were very helpful, very helpful, very supportive. I had a producer allocated to look after me and a couple of the other acts. And she said, if you got to the finals, what would you do? What would you do for your second spot? What would you do for your third spot? So I okay. mapped it out. Okay. Basically, because I've been touring, working for a long time, I've had lots of different endings to the show yeah. over the years. So I could do, oh, I'll finish on that there. But that still saves something else to go go to on the next spot. And mm-hmm. so you're still building. But each spot has a good ending. But you know you can top it in the next spot if you're yeah. lucky enough to get to the next spot. Yeah. So it wasn't like I'd worked out, oh, yes, that's it. That's a breeze. I know how to win this show. Well, not sure. at all. It was, they said, if you got to the finals, how, what would be your route? What would you do? And and I, so I mapped it out and they said, yeah, great. Oh, actually, why don't you swap those two for, you know, do that one first and do that one. I went, OK, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And they were right. Absolutely okay, right. OK. OK. Um, but what was the swap? What And what why uh, were they the right? The swap was the puppet coming alive versus uh, the human dummy, which I did with Howie Mandel. Yes. Uh, I and, can't and remember did, which, which way around I, I think, it was. Did you, I think you finished on Howie Mandel, didn't you? I can't remember now. Last, I wish I, I, wish I knew for sure. Yeah. I can't remember. It's such oh, a long I time ago. I, okay. I can't remember. But it was, whatever it was, that seemed to work. So yeah. I was grateful for my producer saying, well, I think that would be better. Um, but but most of the time, they kind of trusted me, really. And they just said, what, what do you want to do? Especially when we were going out filming the VT stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they said, like, you know, when I was doing, I was in, we were doing the live shows, Radio City. And you know, I'd get through to the, the from the quarterfinals to the semifinals to, to the finals. We were filming lots of VT stuff. And they'd say to me, what do you want to do? And I went, great, let's do some street vent. Let's go and wind yeah, up some people. Right. Let's okay. hide the camera and let's throw my voice and see what the reactions are. Yes, yes. And then the next week it was, uh, you know, what do you want to do? Let's let's take the puppets for, for lunch and have a food fight and, and do a sitcom scenario. So I basically was planting the seed that I can do a street vent show and a sitcom and all these things. And I've got loads to my yeah. repertoire for, yes. for, for a television a television future that was my plan yes gotcha i was going to ask you whether howie mandel was rehearsed into the the piece or if he had any idea no he had no idea he had no idea but was kind of like Howie had no idea that is great because his reactions were very genuine and he did he look at, brilliant he yeah. did look and, annoyed and but just to the exact right amount <laughs> but he knows he knows how to play it and he's you know i'd watched other episodes where magicians got him out all the time yeah right and um he was really, you know, giving, very generous. Whereas if you were to get, say, Simon out yeah. uh, on on, uh, on on the British show or the American show, it could go either way, you know? Yeah. Uh, it He's the boss, so you can't take the piss out of him. Yeah, right. You know? So yeah. why would you take the piss out of him? Why would you try and make the boss look stupid? Yeah. Um, so you've got to be those, you know, when you're, I've watched other people get, you know, different um judges out and you have to be, you have to be sensitive that these people have a fucking massive buzzer in front of them yeah and uh and and it's and it's their show why why would you want to go on there and insult them you know you can insult them like if it's uh, with a puppet i guess it's different so the baby could say you know howie he looks like my daddy you know sure, uh, sure. like it's a, it's a it's a mirror or whatever it was i said but why would you want to take the piss out of the boss? Because they can literally end your television moment there and then. Yeah. So, but someone like Howie was very generous and very, um, just very giving. And I'd watched him. I was originally going to do it with Mel and Howie, both of them, but we didn't have enough time for both. So we just yeah. thought, I thought I'd go with How- Howie. And he was fantastic. 
Uh, and, and it couldn't have been better. And also, I love the fact that I could go and sit behind the judges. Uh, yes, that, I mean, no that one, was no great. One, no one had done that before. No and, uh, and, they, and the producers loved the idea of that. So um, that, was that was really, really that was a real kind of gold star sort of a moment. I would imagine, like the comedy store, as you said earlier on, and it's sort of known on the circuit, I guess, that it's incredibly difficult to become a regular at the comedy store. This is the, the London one, obviously. Um, and uh, But once you're in, it's an it's an easy gig because they're, they've got very high expectations. They're all into it. The setup of the room's brilliant. The sound's brilliant. Yeah. I'm not saying it's an easy, easy gig, but, it, you know, there's compared to the it's fear of being gig. an open micer there backstage yeah. going, this is terrifying. And then once you get in the rhythm of it, you're like, oh, no, this is this is why everyone wants to come here because it's brilliant. I would have assumed that Vegas audiences were something similar, like you spend your whole life trying to get to Vegas. And then when you're there, hey, baby, it's Vegas and all the shows are sort of in the palm of your hand. So that that perspective on actually the fact that, yeah, gamblers, you know, comped rich guys who don't have any investment in the show, people yeah. have lost their life savings, all of that. I wouldn't have expected any of that. Was there a particular, was was there like a, was there like the first day or a, a particular show that you remember where you went, you kind of splat into something that that you had anticipated being much better than it was? They, I think at the opening night. Oh, man. They, they they brought forward the opening night and I'd been, I, w- I was touring, I was doing a spring tour here yeah. uh, in the UK. And so I was literally backwards and forwards uh, and we were, we were emigrating. So we were moving house, trying to find a house whilst touring here. And I was doing casinos and big theatres and um, places in Canada and, yeah. and around America and then going in, rehearsing the show, then flying off again, then coming back. And they brought forward the opening date. So uh, my mind was, I, I was, you know, it was a, it was a crazy time. It was an amazing time, but it was a crazy time and it was very stressful. Um, and the opening night and they had uh, a full crew in to film bits of the show, which they could use for, for, um, promotion. Mm. Uh, and, you can see when you look at the footage, I am sweating my tits off and the audience reaction is, is half of what it normally is. And so yeah. I really, really had to work hard and there's, you know, there's celebrities in the audience as well. So it yeah. was, it was a nerve wracking experience. Jeez. Um, I knew that it, you know, it was no picnic. I was doing an hour and nearly an hour and a half. Um, it's quite a long time on your own. Yeah. Um, and so, um, yeah, that was, I didn't, I, di- I didn't expect it to be that hard. And, um, I think you can see, I, the only other time where, where I've looked as nervous, I think was on a Royal Variety show. It was on my second Royal Variety show from the Hippodrome, Birmingham. Brian Connolly was the host and I did my baby routine, which I'd already done on Bradley Walsh's big stage earlier that year on Channel 5. And Nigel Lithgow produced it and said, I want you to do the same spot you did with the baby. And I went, oh yeah, it's great. I want to do that. And you can see this look of absolute fear in my eyes. Uh, and I remember thinking, oh, my God, I'm getting half the reaction I got on the TV show that I did earlier that year. But it's because the set of it is the Royal Variety Show. These people have paid a fortune for these tickets, for, which go to charity for this show. And there's yeah. Ken Dodd, there's Barry Manilow, all these people uh, on, on the show. And there's me with this bloody baby. And and uh, and you can just see, I, I, I can see myself thinking, oh, my God, yeah. Yeah, I'm thinking, oh, my God, I'm going to get a round of applause for that. That's just getting a titter. What's going on? Keep smiling. Everything's all right. That's my inner monologue. They'll laugh. It's OK. They can just bo- they can boost the laughs in the edit. It'll be fine. Keep smiling and look at it. It's all marvellous. And, and I got through it. But I look back and go, oh, blimey, you can see that I'm shitting myself. God. <laughs> Is there, are there any kind of mountains left to climb in terms of, obviously, there's the sitcom and the kind of ambition and, and your drive towards 
making stuff on TV, like making your own show, your own sitcom kind of show. But are there any other, you've done Vegas, you've been flown, to, I'm sure, to the Cayman Islands to perform for billionaires. You know, you've done all, you've done all that, you've done the cruises. Are there any other places that you'd like to play that you haven't yet played? I would like to play some some bigger venues around the world. I'd like to do like a world tour. That's what I'd like to do, a proper world tour. And, um, you know, put on put on the kind of Vegas show that I did, but to, but tour it. Yeah. Uh, and and you know to 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 big rooms, which I've I've been fortunate enough to do some really big rooms in like Canada and America, but I haven't done that. I've you know I've done theatres, I've done clubs around the world, but not big rooms. I'd like to do some okay. big rooms, and I'd like to go back and and revisit Vegas and do it the way I want to do it, rather yeah. than the way they wanted me to do it. Okay. Ah, that's I'm really I'm I suppose I'm quite charmed by how kind of simple your drive is. Do you know what I mean? It's like it's uncomplicated. Big shows, bigger shows. Make more stuff. Yeah. Invent more things. Yeah. Use all yeah. the skills you've got. More, more, more. I suppose you you seem untroubled by the kind of um, again I talked about that. You know the kind of hobo stand up comedian idea of a sort of a shambolic person kind of working out there in a demons or what have you. Is is there a part of that for you? Is there is part of your creativity and your performance on stage? Is part of it? cathartic is it sort of an expression of something deeper than simply enjoying and i don't i don't mean simply in a, in a derogatory way but simply enjoying making people laugh like you're uh you know 15 years old and making the grown-ups laugh i mean that's all it is isn't it I'm, I'm getting on stage i'm showing you my puppet show and i'm wanting you to laugh and i just want to do it and, and get as as big a laughs and people to laugh you know laugh as much as possible really um I, I, you know, when you've had a great gig, you know what it's like. You, you, you come off stage and you go, oh, that, that felt great. And, and when, when you've worked in new material and it's up and running and it's working and you're really pleased and it's, it's quite simple, really. I just, I just, I'd like to, you know, keep moving it forward and doing things with ventriloquism that, that haven't been done yet. And I just think, just keep playing around with it and you never know what comes out of it. So that's, that's a fun thing. Um, I, I it's not, you know, I, I don't have any major problems in life. I not I didn't, you know, you, you know, the, 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 that's why I, I always thought I could, actually I've got, I was starting to write a routine about, you know, a stand up routine about the fact that I never did straightforward stand up because I never had anything to moan about. I didn't have a pr- uh, trouble getting to the gig. I, you know, uh, my <laughs> wife is lovely. She's not, you know, my mother in law, you know, there's, there's, that was, there, I've had a really nice time actually. And I've done what I wanted to do and I'm still lucky enough to do what I want to do. Hopefully, as long as we're, you know, when, when things get back to normal. Um, so that's why I, I never had anything to moan about. So I didn't want to do, want to be a straight, straight stand up. But I love the stand up elements within my show where I'm still using ventriloquism, but yeah. showing how I can have fun throwing the voice. Yeah. But it was never. Yeah, it's not particularly a cathartic thing for me. It's just something I love doing. And what is your favourite bit of another variety act and why? Like which bit do you see and you think, oh, I wish I wish I had that. I wish that was, you know, that I come up with that. Um, oh, okay. Um, well, that's a really good question. One of my favourite um, routines or um, uh, of a of an well, David Copperfield is one of my favourites, and uh, even though 
people's perception of him in the UK for a while was that he was this American over the top, big hair, fan blowing, you know, illusionist, but he's actually really funny. And you see yeah. some of his comedy routines. He's brilliant. And he does this routine where he levitates a woman from the audience who has a fantasy, a fantasy of, of, of levitation, which mm-hmm. means she has a secret desire to date a magician. And he does this whole routine <laughs> where he levitates her uh, on two step ladders while singing like, and his fantasy is to sing like Fra- Frank Sinatra whilst levitating a woman. Okay. Uh, and he does this great, it's such a perfect routine. It's such a perfect routine and an amazing illusion. That's one of my favorite, favorite bits of, of a, of another act. Um, I just love that. Uh, and, uh, one of my favorite acts is a, a juggler called Frank Olivier. Oh yeah. Okay. And, and who I saw on the Paul Daniel show when I used to go and sit in the audience and he did a whole routine with the clubs and the helicopter yeah. And I just loved his act. I just thought, what, what a great, it was the first time I think I'd seen a juggler and thought, Oh my God, they can be, they can be hilarious. Yeah. Um, yeah. and so Frank Olivier and the, and the, and the, uh, the pickaxes and, and, um, you know, go and look them up on YouTube. You know, if you, if you're not familiar with, with yeah. Frank Olivier yeah. and David Copperfield, um, stepladder levitation, those are two of my favorite things I can watch time and time again. And, and Ray Allen and Lord Charles doing the mind reading with, with Lord Charles, uh, and uh, with the dummy blindfolded. Yeah. So if you have one quality which got you where you are besides your performance ability, what would it be? Uh, if I had one, you mean if, one you that mean I haven't we, got? No, 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 no. I mean, sorry. I mean, one that you do have, like not counting the comedy skill, the writing, the talent, like other, other non performative abilities that you have that got you where you were like you know is it is it focus is it is it slog is it you know punctuality um, uh, it's, <laughs> what it's, non-performative yeah, I think, thing i think it's obsession it's good to be obsessed that's uh, i'm obsessed has that cost you anything yeah a marriage has it <laughs> yeah I've, I've been so obsessed my private life has kind of you know suffered uh, as a result i think because i've just been so single-minded does that? Do you ever re- regret that? No, because I think um, if I hadn't have had that drive, I wouldn't have, you know, got to doing to to, to got to be where I am now. That sounds ridiculous, but got to do what the things that I have done. So I think it kind of is meant to be in an awful way. Like that is that's really interesting because this is it is I, I feel your story of performance is a sort of uncomplicated story of wanting to do a thing putting loads and loads of work and effort and getting up early and and you know working hard and making it all work and as a result getting to you know an extraordinary level fame vegas all of those kind of things um yeah but i think that the idea of what it's what it costs people what the price of obsession is really fascinating because i sometimes well go on no, 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 carry on. Well, I just, I, I sometimes wonder about my own relationship to it. I've been through periods of obsession. I wonder in the last year whether the 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 enforced break due to the pandemic has kind of released me a bit of some of the obsession and maybe like the fact that I've been able, that at the moment there's very few gigs in my diary so I can go out on a Saturday night with some local friends and have a pint and I'm like, I've never been able to do that in 15 years, <laughs> yeah. you know, it's, it's yeah. quite attractive. <laughs> you know I mean? it, it's nice, isn't it? But at first, slightly unnerving. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that, that that's, that's something that I, you know, I've thought about a lot over the last year when I haven't been, you know, gigging as much as, you know, we would normally be. And that is, well, what if, it, what if live entertainment is doomed? You know, you have these dark moments where you think, oh my God, you know, and, and, and the hospitality sector 
entertainment, live entertainment has really, really, really struggled. Mm. Um, I saw an agent, an old agent friend of mine, um, uh, a few weeks ago and he said, he just said, he said, show business has been decimated. Those were his exact words. And I thought, you're bloody right. And I just thought, God, what if live entertainment doesn't ever come back? What can I do? I can't do anything else. What am I going to do? That's what I thought. So I've I've only ever done this, you know, from even when I was at school, I was doing, you know, my, my talent competition, school talent competition. I levitated my sister at the age of 15. I knew I was going to be doing something stupid and weird and funny and silly. I never, ever wanted ever. There was never any question of having a normal job. And so the last year has definitely made me go, wow, what, what, what would I do? Yeah. Last question. And I only ask this of people who I consider to be very successful. Why aren't you more successful than you are? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I don't know. Don't, I don't know what the answer to that is. Um, better management. Need better management. Are you managed at the moment? No. Okay. I left I left my management because I wanted better management. Yeah. That's tricky, isn't it? Finding the right finding the person that shares the vision. It's like we we're talking about with the pilot. Yeah. Yeah. That must be very hard. It's really important. And my first agent, when I took me on when I was seventeen, she sadly passed away a few months ago. And um my first my first agent, Jenny uh, she was, you know, she was there from the beginning. She was like, you know, she would be at the back of the room doing a corporate, mm-hmm. uh, when, when I was, you know, just starting out, she was there in the TV studio. She was there at all hours. She'd ring me after the gig, you know, driving back from Skegness at 12 o'clock at night, having a terrible time. How was it? What was wrong? You know, and you had someone that was there with you. Mm-hmm. And that was a real kind of sort of old fashioned manager in a way. And I've been managed by lots of massive companies over the last few years. I never really had that, that, that personal contact with someone where you just get it and they're there with you all the way. Mm. And it's the same as, you know, having a producer that you, that wants to work with you and, and believes you're, has got the same vision. That's, that's a, you know, it's lucky to find someone like that. Thanks, Paul. Absolute pleasure, Stuart. So that was Paul. Thank you so much to him for coming along. There is more stuff with Paul Zerdin on the Insiders Club at comedianscomedian.com slash insiders with all of that extra bobbins from Fern Brady, Alfie Brown, Nish Kumar, James Acaster. And those aren't even mentioning all of the extra episodes. There's extras from Greg Jenner, Catherine Bohart, Jesse Cave, loads of people that we've had recently. Um, And of course, uh, all of the episodes uh, as they go out are totally ad free. So just one more fantastic reason to lock yourself into the insiders club and thank you to a man called george who recently joined at a regular monthly donation amount far in advance of anything anyone else has done um that's very kind of you george and uh, even more kind when you consider that due to the principles at play in the creation of this podcast and the insiders club which is to say my principles uh, george receives no more extra stuff than anyone else so thanks once again george and everyone else who's uh, who's signed up recently so uh, a brief postamble coming at you shortly provided future girl has shut her 
<laughs> beautiful yap uh, in the background. I think she has. Um, so I will now uh, thank everybody. And then post Amber at you. Thanks to Nathan Wood, who edited and uploaded and produced the show. Uh, thank you very much to Jake Crossland for the logging. Thanks to Rob Smountain for the music and Peter Dobbing for nothing. <laughs> Thanks, everybody. Find Paul on tour before very long. Go to paulzerdin.com or follow him on all the socials at Paul Zerdin. No post-amble this week. Uh, let's all get on with our lives. Bye for now. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.